So, hello. <clears throat> Welcome to uh, episode number four. Uh, my voice is a little bit, uh, yeah, as you can hear, there's something going on. I have a little bit of a sore throat last few days, but uh, that's it, just a bit of a sore throat. Anyway, so I'm gonna give this a go. I'm doing this a little bit uh, sooner than I had planned. I was planning on doing it tomorrow, but I have the time right now, so I'm gonna give it a go now. Uh, right, so, yeah. I have since listened back to the last podcast that I did, and <laughs> it's quite funny that uh, I think there's about two, maybe there's two, if not, I don't think there's three, maybe there's two places where <laughs> I said the wrong word, like I was talking about parchment, uh, how it was made, and I said it's essentially skin, it's essentially, I think it said something like cowhide with the skin rubbed off. I mean, when you, if anyone heard that, they probably would have known, like, I think he meant the hair rubbed off the skin, which is exactly what I meant. That's what parchment is. It's, it's hide that has the hair rubbed off it. Um, so that's quite funny. When I was listening back to that, I was like, that is so strange. <laughs> it's like when I was having those few, uh, you know, you're, I'm thinking of all these different things and then I go from one thing to another as kind of like a little aside in the moment. And then I'm supposed to get back to the main point, but then I go to one aside and then I go to another aside and then I forget what the main point was. And then I, then I am at the train station waiting for the train again. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> funny things happen with the mind <clears throat> during these, uh, podcasts. Uh, I can't remember right now what the other mistake I made was. Maybe it's going to come back to me. Um, uh, but yeah. There was about two of them. If if I said something strange, you can maybe... I'm going to hopefully have a place, maybe it's going to be an Instagram or something, where people can message me or whatever. You know, if I get some feedback or something, I'll have a, a base where I can... Um, yeah, because otherwise, to not get any feedback or anything, that would uh, I would prefer to be able to get some feedback. You know, maybe people can give me good tips or pointers or something. That might be cool. Anyway... So, um, yeah, th that was just a little housekeeping note I wanted to mention. I should have... Re there was something else. I can't remember what it was now. I, sh I didn't have... I wasn't taking notes at the time when I was reviewing the essay. Or reviewing the podcast, the last one. Anyway, if something comes back to me, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say it. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah. So, like um, the, the last podcasts i was you know reading a book um the book by ivan illich and uh in my you know it took a while to read it all and to review it all and all that kind of stuff uh and then as i said i was like you know going for a run i was listening to some other podcasts in the meantime and i found two kind of really relevant quotes and i that was good look and i put them into the podcast and kind of like that this time around um something like that has happened again it was the other day I was um, watching, there's two videos here now, I was watching, um, oh yeah, so it was it, it was Jordan Peterson, it was a video uh, by Jordan Peterson, everybody's uh, new uh, favorite uh, democratizer or popularizer of uh, psych, uh, psychology. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's, yeah, he's cool. Um, anyway, so I was watching one of his videos and, um, it was really impressive because the video, where is it now? It's called, what was the video called? I have the name of it somewhere here. Where did I put it? Um, 
in it, he, he basically says, damn it, where is the video? The video? What's it called? It's, it's called like back off uh, to the New World Order. What the hell? Where, where did I put the name of it? Because it'd be nice to be able to give that for people to look up. <clears throat> if you look up uh, Jordan Peterson, um, oh yeah, it, it's like uh, back off, oh masters of the world. If you type in that, you'll you'll get it. It's him. Uh, oh no, that he, I was going to describe the suit he was wearing, but that's in the other video I want to talk about. Um, <clears throat> There's a long version of this video I'm talking about. It's him. Why I'm talking about this is because he wrote an article in The Telegraph um, a few months ago. I'm not sure when exactly now. But he wrote this article criticizing um, groups like the World Economic Forum um, with their idea of the uh, new world order, which all a lot of the leaders in the world have been using over the years. You know, the World Economic Forum is this group of unelected people who have plans for how the future is going to be and how they want it to be. And one of them, for example, I mean, if you don't know about this, you really have to look into it because the problem is, if people don't know about this, then society is literally going to sleepwalk into exactly what they want. And if you knew what they want, I don't think you would want to go along with it, as I don't, because I've been looking into it. And one of the guys, the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, he, you can see him in interviews on the internet saying, oh, you will all have microchips in your heads and these microchips will monitor your what you're thinking. And these people, whoever they are, are going to be able to see what you're thinking and what your attention is on. And it's just insane. <clears throat> There's lots of uh, videos. Russell Brand has done lots of videos on this. So if you don't know about the, the Global Reset, which uh, the Great Reset, sorry, which is a book by Klaus Schwab, they're not hiding this. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is an open, open plan. Um, <clears throat> so... I'm just saying, if you don't know about this stuff, you have to put it on YouTube, go to YouTube, search it, Google it. Although, if you Google it, maybe the fact checkers are going to just, that's, you know how fact checking works? <laughs> like, whoever saw fact checking before the, the COVID pandemic? Did you, I didn't see any fact checkers before COVID. I, maybe there was, but nowadays with COVID, if you, if you Google anything, you know, is ivermectin good against COVID, which it is, apparently. Uh, but the fact checkers will tell you, no, it's not. So, yeah. <clears throat> okay, I won't get too sidetracked into that. But, um, yeah. So, just, um, yeah, look up the World Economic Forum. Look up the guy who wrote that book called Homo Sapiens, uh, Noah Yuval Harari. I probably got that, probably butchered that name there now. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, he's... It's it's like transhumanism. I think he's into transhumanism. This because they're all about humans merging with AI, and you know you're gonna have chips in you. I'm sorry, but look, I'm not going there. <laughs> you have your plans. I'm sorry, but Hitler had plans as well, didn't he? But thankfully, he didn't get to do them. Um, so yeah, these people. 
Um, what's the saying? There's, there's a few sayings. The only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph is for men of good conscience to do nothing. Um, yeah, so, yeah. If we do not look into these things, um, society is just going to sleepwalk into exactly what they want. Uh, and so, yeah, um, I'm talking about it. There's lots of people on the internet talking about it, so please look it up if you don't know about it. But if you do look it up, you're going to realize this is absolutely not something that you could want. How could anybody want to put a chip into their head that allows someone else to know what you're focusing on, to know what you're thinking and feeling? I'm sorry, that's just your individuality is gone if you do that. So, yeah, not interested. Uh, lots of people are not. Uh, so the, we just need, it's simple as this. If the majority of the people are aware of this, rather than sleepwalking into it, um, if the majority of people are aware of it and say, no, we don't want to do that, no, that's it. They can't do anything. Because if the majority doesn't want to agree with it, that's it. Their plan is ruined. Um, so anyway, this is all the stuff that Jordan Peterson's essay uh, was about a few months ago. It was in The Telegraph. Um, and he, he made a video... And this is why I'm talking about this video as being relevant. Well, two reasons it's relevant. I totally agree with him. But also, what he did was, he, ha he wrote this essay, and then a few months later, he decided to make a YouTube video, excuse me, where he r reads out this essay just to give the essay more opportunity to be heard by more people. Because not everyone bought that, ep that uh, edition of the Telegraph newspaper. I didn't know about it, you know? So, the, the medium of YouTube is going to just make make it so much more open um, and that's kind of like when he said that I was like oh yeah like yes it's a good idea um, it's kind of like what I'm doing here with these uh, with these books that I've I, I feel lucky enough to have gotten an interest in and to discover them and I'm you know <laughs> when you find these books it's very exciting you know um, I won't. I was going to mention a book that I might do in the next episode, but I'll leave that for as a surprise. But um, yeah. So I mean, these gems of books. Um, if you start looking into it, you'll be surprised with what you find and what the books are about. But anyway, so uh, yeah, that's kind of my what I'm what I'm doing here. It's like taking these things that if people who don't read, they they'll never they'll never come across these things. So what I what 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 I want to do is. Um, take these things that if people are not into reading, that's, you know, I understand it. I, I wasn't into reading when I was younger. I did different things, so I understand it. But now that I have found it, I'm just like, whoa, you know, <laughs> um, if only someone had, 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 had like tried to influence me to look at these things. Wow. I would have been a lot better off a lot sooner. You know what I mean? So as I say, these, this podcast is me talking to a, I'm like, I'm like time traveling back to my 18 year old old self <laughs> and I'm talking to him, but also everyone else listening. So, um, but, um, yeah, I said that before. Anyway, um, I'm not just talking to, I'm not just doing that. That's just, a, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's like a metaphor. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so 
Um, I thought that was really cool what he did with the uh, with the essay, bring it onto a different medium so more people get the chance to hear it. That's exactly what I'm doing with these books, right? So I thought that was interesting. Uh, and then the content of that essay, I actually listened to the whole thing and I was like, wow, Jordan Peterson, like, wow. I commend you, sir. Like, wow, great. It's it's As I was saying, there's a long version. The full thing is like 25 minutes or something. And then there's a short version of the last two and a half minutes or something. Um, as I said, the title, if you Google or YouTube, Jordan Peterson, um, I think it's like Back Off, O Masters of the World or something like this. And then the shorter one is, uh, damn it, where did I put these notes? Um, I don't know where I wrote those down. It's a pity. Maybe it's on the next page. Oh, maybe it's her. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be here now, is it? No, it's not. Okay, never mind. You'll get it at that. And then anyway, and then I just today coincidentally watched another Jordan Peterson video. Um, <laughs> it's him and uh, Joe Rogan. And uh, he's on Joe Rogan a good few times. But um, the one is called An Invitation to the Future. And this is great. This is in relation to the content of what he was talking about in, in, in the article he wrote. Um, he's like me, you know, not interested in going along like a sheep with these World Economic Forum's uh, people's ideas. No thanks. Um, so he's saying, so what do we do if we don't want to go along with that? Well, we have to make something up ourselves. We have to, if we don't want to go with their system, we have to have our own system. So uh, he seems to be involved in a, I don't know if he's the instigator of this uh, of this uh, project where um, he's gonna bring top like uh, people at the top of their field uh, because they have more influence in some convention I think in October I think it's in London he said if you watch that video an invitation to the future with uh, Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan show you'll see it it's I really recommend it, it was a great video it's only like six minutes long or something but um yeah, in it, he talks about, um, yeah, he wants to talk with all these like leaders in their fields about how to organize a better system. They don't have, they don't have goals like the World Economic Forum does. The World Economic Forum is saying there is going to be a, a, the Great Reset to install the Fourth Industrial Revolution where you will own nothing and you will be happy. I'm sorry. I'm not going to I'm not going to be involved in that and the majority of people are not going to be involved in that because everyone's going to learn about it in time and uh, their plans are going to go down the toilet which is where they belong um, so uh, so yes in this video he was talking about um, an alternative system <clears throat> so uh, he was saying they don't have clear objectives yet but they have questions what do we want how do we want this to work anyway i just recommend listening to that video like this podcast would go on too long if i go into the details of that video but uh let me just mention one word that i picked up it's a new word for me in that uh video it's subsidiarity 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 and then there's a great quote he said um it's all about you have to take responsibility um, you just really have to go watch that video <laughs> it's not too long, it's great but uh, there's one quote, I scribbled it down now, am I even going to be able to read it so he said, um, he said a cardinal rule of social organisation is a cardinal rule, that's like you know I'm just a self-evident rule that always happens 
in social organization is all the responsibility you abdicate, meaning all the responsibility you do not assume, that you do not take on, like, you know, if, if something should be your responsibility, but you don't take it on, that's what that means, abdicate. All the responsibility you abdicate will be taken up by tyrants. You see, and that's, uh, I don't know, that was, yeah, he got that from somewhere because it's a, it's a general rule in relation to social organization. So he got that from somewhere, I'm assuming, and then he quoted it. But it's exactly like what I'm talking about. If you don't take responsibility for how you want the world to be, then you're giving it to someone else, that responsibility for how the world wants to, they want the world to be. And their intentions might not be as good as yours. And so they become tyrants. That's what he says. All the responsibility you abdicate will be taken up by tyrants. So, and this idea, this word subsidiarity, it's like this hierarchy of, um, of uh, taking responsibility. I'll just really go watch that video. Uh, An Invitation to the Future by Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan Show. Check it out. It's not too long. But uh, yeah, it's just very, it's cool. I'm like really, yeah, I really am impressed with him um uh, with how vocal he's being about all of this um so yeah i really like wow go jordan peterson you know people like russell brand obviously russell brand is a total fucking legend uh he's been talking about all this kind of stuff i've been you know following him and other people for a long time but i suppose this is my first time you know this is what the fourth podcast so now i'm uh yeah didn't take very long for, for these things to come up but anyway <clears throat> um so I guess now that was kind of like the that was the housekeeping done and and then it was like the uh, coincidental thing that I found that relates to the podcast um which was Jordan Peterson his essay um or his article he put it onto the different medium to get more of an uh, audience for it and that's what my whole podcast is about with these books and so I think I can go on to my uh book for this uh this I was going to say this week, but this, this episode, um, yeah, I can. Right. So, <clears throat> so the book I picked this time, it's actually just an essay. One second, my throat is quite bad. How long have I done? I'm curious. Yeah. So it's an essay, 20 minutes. Um, it's an essay, but I bought it as an essay. It's only 37 pages long. But it comes in a, like, you know, the book I bought for this essay, it's 250 pages long. So it has an introductory essay of like 77 pages. The actual essay itself is 37 pages. And then <laughs> there's something like 150 pages of footnotes at the back. So it's quite a big book for just an essay that's 37 pages long. But wow, what a book it is. Because, um, um, did I even say what it is? Yeah, I'll just do it, say what it is. Uh, so it's uh, it's written by Sir Philip Sidney, who was um, born in 1554, I think. Um, <clears throat> he had a short life, unfortunately. Uh, I think he was only 30 years old when he, when he died. Um, I'll get into that later. But um, so he was as aristocratic as, it, as you can get he had princely ambitions. Um, his father was the Lord, uh, what's it called? The Lord Deputy of Ireland, meaning he was the, 
his father was the highest representative for the queen in in, in Ireland at that time. So just I'm just uh, pointing out this guy's uh, high society status, high aristocratic status. Um, he personally knew Queen Elizabeth I. Um, there's quite an interesting uh, story where um, the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, was was possibly going to be marrying a, a French uh, king or prince, I'm not sure. And um, there was a bit of, uh, you know, there was a... And, and the thing is, the, the French person was Catholic, so the Protestantism was kind of new in England at the time. So uh, there was Catholic people and Protestant people. So um, the whole Protestant project in England was up for grabs. You know, this was a big problem for the Protestants if the Queen was going to marry into uh, a Catholic... Um, Catholic uh, family. Um, so, <clears throat> um, one second. Through. So, um, where was I going? Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm a bit groggy. <laughs> I'm a bit groggy with this throat thing. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so what was it with all, what was the point I was trying to make? So, yeah. Oh yeah, the 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 story I was gonna make. So he knew the Queen Elizabeth I, and um, there was an argument one day between Philip Sidney on a tennis court, um, and the Earl of Oxford. I can't remember now. I think it's the seventeenth Earl of Oxford. I'm not sure, but anyway, I looked it up, and who this Earl of Oxford was. He is. Um, have you ever heard about the 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 Shakespearean authorship problem? Like scholars, some scholars um, don't believe that this guy William Shakespeare wrote all the plays of uh, Shakespeare. And there's an excellent film. I watched it again a few weeks ago. It's called Anonymous. Um, it's a great film. It's all about this. It's all about how there's lots of videos on, on YouTube um, of people uh, arguing that the real um, Shakespeare was uh, this Earl of Oxford. Um, um, yeah, so this film, uh, Anonymous, is great if you're interested in this. Um, so anyway, this guy, Philip Sidney, had an argument on a tennis court one day with the Earl of Oxford. They were playing together. Uh, it was over um, uh, Philip... Um, Philip was against the marriage into the Catholic family and uh, the Earl of Oxford was actually for it for some reason. I haven't looked too much into it, but those are the basic uh, uh, facts of the story. And the situation got a bit heated between the two of them and the Earl of Oxford um, challenged um, Philip Sidney to a duel. Now, I just read the word duel. I don't know if that's with a gun or with a sword, but either way, it's pretty serious. And then the Queen Elizabeth I herself actually intervened into um, the situation to stop it. And she got quite angry with Philip Sidney. And uh, from the essay that I read, the introductory essay that I read, um, she, uh, she is said to have uh, reminded Philip Sidney of his status in relation to the Earl of Oxford's status, because the Earl of Oxford was one of the oldest... Uh, 
what do you call it, uh, noble families in England, apparently. And so, uh, um, yeah, I think she she um, reminded, uh, she put Sidney in his place, essentially. She reminded him of the difference between um, earls and, is it just aristocrats? I'm not quite sure now. I probably have the status terms wrong there. But essentially, the Earl of Oxford was higher in status than Philip Sidney, even though Philip Sidney was, you know, way up there. But anyway... So when I came across that, that was quite interesting little anecdote. And if you watch that film, <laughs> you you uh, you will have an idea maybe as to why Queen Elizabeth I would have stood in to stop a fight where the Earl of Oxford may have gotten hurt. <laughs> if you watch that film, you'll have a yeah, you'll you'll see that situation in in a in an interesting light. One second. <clears throat> so um. So, uh, yeah, so I'm just giving an idea of this guy's uh, background. Um, he, um, yeah, so he, because he's so aristocratic, anyone who was aristocratic in those days in England had an excellent education, uh, a humanist education. And a humanist education, I in the, I should just say, uh, the footnotes at the back of this book were just unbelievable. There is... For every one page of the 37-page essay, for every one page, there is between three to seven pages of footnotes explaining references um, and uh, words in the, in the essay. So I learned so much. And um, what was I just going to say? I was going to say something. That's why I jumped onto this footnote thing. But um, um, I was talking about... There it is. <laughs> Gone again now. I was talking about what the I was talking about his education. I was talking about um, the, oh yeah, the humanist. One of the foot one of the footnotes at the back was it was a good definition of what a humanist is. And when I read that, I was like, hmm, my podcast is almost kind of about humanism because uh, humanism is um, from like the early Renaissance onwards. This thing of humanism was a uh, was a uh, was a uh, like a philosophy was a uh, What's what am I? What's the word I'm trying to say? Basically, humanism is people who are trying to engage with the classics from ancient Greece and Rome, who are trying to. It's essentially a Renaissance thing, you know. It's their whole Renaissance was about a rebirth, a relearning, re-engaging with all of these books that had been lost throughout the Dark Ages. So if you're like, a, it's like you're trying to pick up where civilization left off before it crumbled, you know. So it's like you're you're trying to pick up the, the pick up the the ball again and run with it. The ball being civilization, the highest achievements of civilization, which was in the Greek and Roman minds, um, and then the Dark Ages. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, um, human. Yeah. So humanism uh, it was it was a footnote in the back of uh, this um, back of this uh, essay book. Um, so yeah, Sydney had an excellent uh, um, education. I think he went to uh, he went to Oxford himself, one of the colleges there. Um, what else can I say about him? Um, yeah, so a part of um, his education was this thing called the Grand Tour. Like all the aristocratic people from the early Renaissance onwards did it up until. I don't know, did they still do it? But um, it's essentially, you do a big tour of, um, financed by your parents probably, uh, a big tour of Europe, and you go and visit all courts and uh, 
princes and queens and kings and you make lots of new acquaintances and you learn new languages and you improve your Latin and all this kind of stuff. I think Latin was a lingua franca. franca. Um, oh no, that was me. Okay, I'm not so sure about that. How, But they all read Latin. Some probably read Greek as well. Anyway, that's uh, something else for me to look into. But uh, yeah, they would have lear- he would have learned French and German and Italian and maybe Spanish as well. So, so anyway, this is a, a tradition. It's an interesting tradition. Wow. <laughs> Wouldn't I have liked to have done that? <clears throat> but, uh, and I was just thinking, um, if you're interested in this, um, there is actually, there's a British poet. He was a romantic poet called Lord Byron. Um, so that would have been early 1800s uh, when he was uh, doing his thing. And uh, one of his books is um, it's a book, uh, it's a story all about his, um, well, his was actually kind of his exile from England. He had criticism about England, so he left England and he kind of did a grand tour. So if you're interested in what the grand tour is, you, you could, it's probably documentaries about it and stuff, but I'm just thinking of... Uh, Lord Byron's poem it's called Child Harold's Pilgrimage and it's just a really cool him um, his adventure around England around uh, Europe anyway so that's just uh, an interesting point I thought um, so Sidney himself did that and then he came back to England and uh, he had like uh, princely ambitions he, he was a uh, um, yeah so he's a he's a the thing is though this um, event with him and the Earl of Oxford that actually got him banished from the court of Queen Elizabeth. So uh, I think he was a bit of a frustrated guy um, from then onwards. Um, but anyway, when he when he was kind of he was told to leave the court uh, of Queen Elizabeth, he went and lived with his sister, I think, and then that's where he wrote his books of poetry and that's where he wrote his essay. Um, <clears throat> but then later on in life, he did. I think he did get some diplomatic mission from the from the Queen. And then, actually, he died in battle, um, fighting against the Spanish um, army that was in ho- occupying Holland. Um, I didn't look into that too much now, but yeah, the English were fighting the Spanish there at one stage, and uh, he he is um, he got shot and he died. I'll get back to that later on, though. So anyway. Um, yeah, so this, um, yeah, so I should say, I read this essay uh, years ago, like about 2016 or something, because I have, I, when I look at this book, the same book I have, I read then, I have all my notes in it from my first time round, and I see 2006 is written on it, I always date my notes. Um, and uh, when I read the essay first time around, I read a lot of the footnotes at the back as well, but uh, I never read the introductory essay at the front, which was like 77 pages long. So this time I reread the essay and made more, more, more notes and uh, looked at a lot of the footnotes again. And then when I had my own experience with the essay, then I went and read the introductory essay. And it was so good because it provided me with the context, uh, yeah, biographical information about Sydney as well, but the context that the essay was written in. So that was really great. It really enriched my understanding of the essay. Um, and I'm just thinking like this, the, after my, my first episode, like I did an introductory essay, uh, introductory podcast. Uh, and then I did my first episode was actually my first recording. Um, that was uh, me talking about um, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley's uh, very famous essay, um, the, A Defense of Poetry. 
Um, <clears throat> our defense of poetry, poetry maybe it's called. Forget now. But anyway, um, when I read that essay and that, when I did that podcast, I just spoke about the essay. I didn't, uh, I didn't look into the background information or the context of the essay. I just, you know, it was early on in this podcast project, so I just went with the the essay itself directly. But this time, I did read that uh, introductory essay and. Yeah, it was really, really, really worth it. Um, it's it's going to help how I... Uh, it really helps how I understand the essay. And it's going to help how I uh, give this podcast. <clears throat> so, um, I can think I can get into it now. Or am I probably 30 minutes in or something now here, am I? So, yeah, 30 minutes. So, <clears throat> so yeah, it's called um, An Apology for Poetry or The Defense of Poetry. So why is he defending, why did he write this essay, this uh, defense of poetry? Why was poetry been attacked? Um, the humanists, from the early Renaissance onwards, up until the 15th century, they had, um, you know, in their rediscovering of uh, ancient poets and, uh, you know, from Greece and Rome, they had a great respect for poetry. They could see its benefits, and I'll get into that now in a minute. But um, but unfortunately, poetry um fell out of favor um when the Protestant Reformation happened. Um, can I explain that now? Um, yeah, I'll probably get into that later. But I'll just that, that, but you need to just know at the start that poetry as an art had fallen out of favor. Um, and I'm gonna get into the reasons why in in a bit. Um. But I'll be jumping the gun now, I think, if I do that now. So um, that's all you need to know, that poetry was on the ropes, essentially, in Philip Sidney's day. Um, so there was another poet, he knew Philip Sidney, called Edmund Spencer. Um, and he wrote a few books, and one of his books, um, what's it called, the... Something about a shepherd. Oopsie. Where is that? I don't think I have that written down here now somewhere. I could have to go look in the book. I'm not going to bother doing that. Do you want to know the name of that book? Let's see if I can find it there. Oh, I found it, yeah. The Shepherd's Calendar. That was the name um, of one of Edmund Spencer's um, books. And I'm saying this because when he published this book, he dedicated the book to Philip Sidney. Uh, I'm not sure now if Philip Sidney had published any of his own or had written any of his own poetry at this stage. Maybe he did. But anyway, they would have known each other. And obviously, Edmund Spencer was uh, maybe impressed with uh, Philip Sidney's knowledge of, of poetry. So that's why he felt like dedicating this book to uh, Philip Sidney. And then after that book came out, that book of poems, another guy um, wrote called uh, Stephen Gosson. Stephen, did I get that right? Stephen Gosson. Yes, Stephen Gosson wrote another book, which was essentially a critique of poetry and why poetry is bad. <laughs> and I'm going to get into all this. This is the whole point of the book. Um, and, and coincidentally, he dedicated his book against poetry to Philip Sidney also. But I think Philip Sidney didn't... He didn't like. Uh, he didn't ask for that, or he didn't expect that. So I think he felt a bit put on the spot. He was probably like, "Why the hell is this guy like connecting me to this thing?" So 
these two reasons of these two uh, books that were dedicated to, to Sydney, one maybe nicely and the other not so nicely dedicated to Sydney, are likely the reasons why Sydney got drawn into the fray and he decided to, uh, I guess, his own reputation, because the reputation of poetry was in question in this day, for two books then relating to poetry to be connected and dedicated to Sydney made Sydney look very questionable. <laughs> so, uh, so he obviously felt like, oh, shit, I'm really, these people have really put me in it here. So now I have no choice. If I don't say anything, the questionable status of poetry is now casting a questionable light over me. People have problems with poetry. Um, and now they're going to project all those problems onto me and my reputation is going to be affected. So it's likely that that is the reason why he felt like for, for survival of his own reputation, he had to actually respond. One sec. And so he responded in this essay um, as a defense of poetry. Um, but... Before I go into the essay, I should say something that is the absolute driving force of this essay. Um, in Elizabethan England, the, the highest good, the thing that was re respected and revered the most in that society was um, people who acted virtuously. Virtue was the highest good in that society um, and so uh, this essay <laughs> um, if everyone in that society all the aristocratic people they're all trying to be uh, noble and uh, virtuous you know like outstandingly good people this is what they all wanted you know <clears throat> so uh, that was the main thing. Everyone wanted to be that, right? So, uh, and, 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 and so they should. <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, uh, anyway, so this was um, the ideology, let's say. This was, the, this was the thing to do, the thing to be in that day. So, as he's writing this essay, this essay isn't really a defense of poetry. It's actually a, um, an investigation into what is the best way in society for the English state to cultivate virtuous action in people. And through that question, the desire to instill and cultivate virtuous action in people for the benefit of the state. Imagine if the state was full of virtuous <laughs> uh, people. Wouldn't the state be in quite a good state? Um, so this was very important for uh, for the English state. Um, you know, if people are, uh, you know, patriotic and virtuous, um, they might, uh, in, in battle, they might fight harder. And, uh, you know, there's lots of ways that this virtuous virtuosity is going to improve the their society right so this essay um yes sydney was a poet and he is defending poetry but really he is defending poetry in the light that 
poetry is the best inspirer of virtuous action. Now, this is really the core of the essay. Um, so I think I can just uh, go ahead now. And uh, so I think I put this little notebook away. Yeah, so <clears throat> he, uh, so, oh yeah. Um, in the last podcast, I didn't uh, want to do too many quotes because I thought it, I, it might uh, disrupt the flow. But in this one, I think I have a few quotes here um, that I have uh, kind of marked out that I would like to quote in full because the style of this essay is just so, uh, it's, it's just so nice. Um, he's very witty. He's quite funny. Like, he's actually almost punkish. He's like a Renaissance punk, really. Like a quite a virtuous guy, like a virtuous punk. Uh, he's quite like a, he's like a very like gracious rebel. Like he's, he really like outshines the people who are attacking him, really. He, and he does it very graciously and very wittily. So he's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very cool essay. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to do some quotes in this, uh, in this episode, unlike the last one. I tried to stay away from them, but the quote, but it's just so cool his style, um, so um, that's why I'm going to include them. So he's like, uh, he opens up the uh, essay with a little kind of a funny story about when he was doing his grand tour in Italy, he was, uh, he met um, this, uh, what do you call him, uh, a guy who works with horses for soldiers, an equestrian guy, equestrian, equestrian trainer or something, he opens up with a little anecdote about that to kind of, uh, because uh, if anyone's going to be approaching this essay, they're going to think, oh Jesus, you know, this is a horrible thing, but no one likes, it's not that no one likes poetry, but poetry is, uh, as I'm saying, in question, so he uh, opens up with this little kind of uh, funny story to kind of get the reader relaxed and kind of liking him, so, uh, and then uh, it's, um, it's just a praise, this guy, Italian guy, was uh, praising the art of um, of uh, equestrianism, um, and Sydney kind of uh, humorously. Uh, uh, I don't have this quote down now, but I have a little bit from memory. He says, "Like this guy was was talking so impressively about the art of equestrianism that if I had not been a piece of a logician myself, I would have wished myself to be a horse." <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, so he opens up with this kind of friendly, uh, funny um, story. If you read the if you read the essay yourself, um, you, actually, when I did Google to see if anyone else had done a podcast on this um, essay, which I don't think they did, uh, I, there is some guy who has done an audio book of this uh, for free on the internet of this essay. So you could listen to it if you want. If you don't want to buy it. To get the yeah the real thing it's 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 worth it anyway so um so then he goes into um his like praise of his art like the like the guy was praising the art of uh, equestrianism this guy wants to praise his own art which is poetry and um he says straight away he's kind of like thinking how can people have a problem with poetry like are you serious and then he says um it's essentially ungrateful and forgetful if you have a problem with poetry because um, I'll just read out this first one here uh, first truly to all them that professing learning inveigh against poetry may justly be objected that they go very near to ungratefulness to seek to deface that which 
in the noblest nations and languages that are known hath been the first life giver to ignorance and the first nurse whose milk by little and little enabled them to feed afterwards of tougher knowledges. <clears throat> so what he's saying is Western Europe, right? It's all founded on Greece and Roman culture. So the earliest philosophy in Greece and Rome was actually, um, it came in the form of poetry. Um, so if anyone is interested in learning, he's saying to then go against this art of poetry, which brought learning to us in the first place is just ungracious and unforgetful. So he's kind of just reminding, reminding them like, <laughs> you can't do this because if you claim to be interested in learning and yet you're, you're, uh, abusing this uh, art that, uh, gave us all this learning in the first place. Um, he said, and then he's, he's <laughs> he has another quote here then. <clears throat> and will they now play the hedgehog that being received into the den, drave out his host, drave out. That's a very in, in Renaissance style, uh, what, what do you call it? Conjugation of, uh, drove out, drave out, or rather the viper that with their birth kills their parents. See, that's what, you know, yeah, it's just a nice little uh, sentence there. That's why I said I'd uh, include it. <clears throat> and then um, later on, no, I'll, I'll skip the whole Plato thing for now. I'll get back to that later. Anyway, so uh, let me see. What's the next quote I want to get to? Um, yeah, so as I was saying, this whole essay is about Sydney arguing that it is in fact poetry which is the best means of instilling virtuous action into people and that's what that was the most it was the highest good in the day and so this essay he kind of compares the other arts uh for their effectiveness in um in uh influencing people to uh act virtuously and <laughs> in the introductory essay um the guy termed it like uh, this essay is like the Olympic Games uh, in terms of rivalry for which art is the best uh, at instilling virtuous action in people. And the main contenders, let me see if I should get into that first. Um, yeah, so I'll get into that in a bit, but uh, yeah, just keep that in mind. This, this idea of the Olympic Games of which art is the best at instilling virtuous action. It's, it's a big theme in this book. So anyway, so he's, first of all, going back to antiquity and showing the kind of noble history of poetry and how could you frown upon it, you know, how forgetful and ungracious of you. Um, he talks about historians. The earliest historians were all poets. They wrote their things in poetry. Now, because um, earliest histories would have been uh, in oral like I'm saying in, in another podcast, uh, like I was saying, there was a time even in ancient Greece where there was no writing. So even ancient Greece was an oral society. So it's possible that this is why the earliest um, books written in Greece were in poetry because they were preserved. Because in poetry, it's more easy to remember the stories and things because of the rhyme. So uh, this is um, maybe why... Um, 
and there's nothing wrong with it. Like if it, it helped us remember when we didn't have the technology of uh, writing. Anyway, I'll move on. So, um, so yeah, historians and as I'm saying, philosophers and historians, the earliest ones in Greece and all that, they all wrote in the form of poetry. Uh, then he's just talking about how in, in Sydney's day, like all of the other nations, they all revere uh, poetry because, as I'm saying, there was the Protestant Reformation in England, so poetry fell into a kind of a questionable light. I'll get into that later as to why. Um, so he's just saying, um, this is a theme that's in the book. He's kind of trying to understand why poetry has fallen out of favor in England. Um, he kind of, is, yeah, he subtly argues against that. Uh, to try and uh, redeem it. Anyway, he's talking about, uh, there was a quote at the back where Cicero, a very famous Roman um, philosopher, said, uh, Cicero observed that even barbarians do not dishonor the name of poet. Um, he talks about in Turkey, he talks about in Ireland, he talks about in India, how all these other nations, how poets are revered. And he's making the point, like, why is this not the case in... Uh, in England, which I'll get into in a while. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, he goes back then to, among, this is a quote, among the Romans, a poet was called Vate, a Vate, uh, Vate, V-A-T-E, which is as much a diviner, uh, foreseer, or prophet. So heavenly a title did that excellent people bestow upon this heart-ravishing knowledge and so far were they carried into the admiration thereof that they thought in the chanceable hitting upon any such great verses four tokens of their following fortunes were placed. Quite different style, isn't it? <laughs> I'll explain it. Whereupon grew the word of sorte Virgiliane, if I pronounce that right, refers to the custom of opening a copy of Virgil's works. R Virgil was a Roman uh, poet. He wrote the Enad, which is the found the story of uh, the founding of Rome. Um, yeah. So the, uh, this idea was they revered poetry so much that when they had these books in ancient Rome, they would if they had some problem they were going through or some question, something that was troubling them or they wanted to know the answer to, or they wanted the gods to help them or something. They literally went to one of Virgil's books, opened it up at random, and the first passage that they put their eyes on, they were to read that. And that passage in that book was was going to give them help, right? This is how much... It's a bit superstitious, yeah, but... Um, <laughs> coincidentally, I have... Uh, since I found out about this back in 2016, or whenever I read this essay, I've done this a few times, and that's a story for another day, but, uh, yeah, I've done this, I think, uh, twice. In all sincerity, I gave it a go, and... I was blown away <laughs> by the coincidence of the things that I found. That's a, that's a story for another day. I won't do it now. But anyway, <clears throat> so I'm just talking about how he's um, showing how uh, much respect poetry had in, uh, in uh, Roman times. Um, then back in Greece, the oracle of Delphi, um, her, her prophecies were written in hexameter verse. So the most... Uh, priestly of uh, women in uh, Greece wrote in verse. Um, do I have a footnote about that? Um, he talks about the the name of, of a poet in, in ancient Greece was called, uh, probably going to say this wrong, I never heard it pronounced, 
P-O-I-E-I-N, poien, poien or something, which literally means a maker. So a poet was a maker. Uh, and I'll maybe touch on that again later on when I develop this podcast a bit more, <clears throat> this uh, episode. Let me see what else do I want to get into. Um, yeah, next page. So, uh, poetry, 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 poetry. Um, purifying, oh, just another great quote here. So, he's talking about learning and how important learning is. And he says, this purifying of wit, that's what he calls learning, purifying of wit. This enriching of memory, enabling of judgment, like judgment is reason, um, enlarging of conceit. Um, now, actually, conceit is a word that I had to look up in this essay. And conceit is, if we say someone is conceited, that has a negative uh, has a negative association. But in this essay, maybe more the more original sense of the word, it just means an idea, uh, enlarging your ideas, uh, which commonly we call learning, under what name soever it comes forth, or to what immediate end soever it be directed. The final end is to lead and draw us to as high a perfection as our degenerate souls, made worse by the clayey lodgings, can be capable of. To lift up the mind from the dungeon of the body to the, enjoying, to the enjoying his own divine essence. Um, there was a quote then. Yeah, in that quote, there was a, there was a footnote to something in that, and I just uh, have it highlighted here to, speak about, to say it as well. Uh, this is the footnote to uh, purifying wit. Uh, it's just an example of the kind of things that I learned from the footnotes at the back of this book. Um, learning, which Sidney also calls the purifying of wit, that is, the refining of the intellect, was commonly divided into three parts of logic. These three parts are here termed conceit, which is the ability to find ideas and arguments. Um, footnote to line number five about conceit. The activity of the mind in forming notions or concepts about things. Uh, sorry, forget that. So, um, conceit is the ability to find ideas and arguments. Um, <clears throat> where's the next one? Judgment, the ability to put them in order. And memory, the ability to store them for future use. So these are very important things when uh, it's just, this is a part of the art of logic. Like I was talking about before about the, the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Here is, a, is, is like the three parts of logic, which is conceit, judgment, and memory. The ability to find ideas and arguments is the first part. The, and then the ability to put those in correct order and then the art of memory is also important for logic, the ability to store them. So yeah, it's just interesting things like this at the back of the book were edu very educational for me, and yeah, I really appreciate them. Um, so yeah, there's just amazing scholarship gone into uh, this copy of the book I have. It's by a guy called, I don't know his first name, R.W. Maslin. I think he's a professor in Scotland somewhere. So I read in the intro that... Uh, he was, he, I mean, there's a lot of versions of this book. 
uh, there's a lot of publications of this book so different people have written different introductory essays and other people have given their own footnotes at the back and this guy was saying that he worked with a particular author's footnotes but he added a lot more to it so yeah there's just great scholarship gone into this uh, book anyway um go to the next page um so yeah <clears throat> the olympics begins we have uh, the historian and the philosopher and the lawyer are the, the, the arts that are contesting for the first place in this, uh, in this uh, competition for who is the most virtuous communicator uh, and cultivator of virtuous action in people. The, the lawyer seeks to make men good out of fear of punishment rather than love of virtue. The lawyer doesn't endeavor to make men good, but rather that their evil hurts not others. Uh, therefore, as our wickedness maketh him necessary, and necessity maketh him honorable, so is he not in the deepest truth to stand in rank with, with these who all endeavor to take naughtiness away and plant goodness even in the secretest cabinets, cabinet of our souls. So yeah, he's just saying that... Um, Okay, the lawyer is pretty up there, um, but really he's only just stopping people from doing evil. Yes, that's commendable. It's good. But he doesn't really cultivate. Um, he, he's just all focusing on the bad. You know what I mean? Now, the historian, let me see. They're going to do the philosopher. The, the philosopher, therefore, and the historian are they which would win the goal, the one by the precept. Now, this the precept, the philosopher will try and, and cultivate the virtuous action in people by giving the theories about about and principles about what virtuous about what virtuosity is but what's lacking in the in the philosopher is the action the virtuous action part so he's just giving the ideas and the statements about what it is in definition you could say so the philosopher <clears throat> Um, the philosopher would win this competition by the precept and then the historian see the historian can only talk about what actually happened he might he might talk about some great noble king or something okay fine fair enough if he really was a great noble king then that may be a good example but often kings become tyrants so if you're just teaching tyranny and what happened it's not a good example so the good examples in history are, are uh, probably going to occur a lot less than poetic, imaginative, um, like imaginative fiction about what a virtuous person should be like. Um, so, so this sentence here is uh, summing up why the uh, philosopher is not going to win this competition because he's all just... Uh, in definitions and he doesn't show how it actually works and then the historian um, only has in often cases quite just bad examples um, it, it's like the idea of utopia it's like um, it's like without the idea of utopia and utopia means by the way it literally means no place that's what the word literally means because without the idea of utopia there can be no real notion of progress because like when you're improving upon something, you're kind of, you're working towards um, 
a better situation. And like this, I, you know, if, if humans continue developing for hundreds of years, they're always going to be all the time trying to develop and make things better. They're always going to be trying to get to that utopia. You know, we don't know what that is, but we're always trying to improve. So what I'm saying here is, uh, now I lost the train of thought again, so I don't know what I'm saying here again. Anyway, um, uh, what, oh yeah, I was saying that imaginative fiction, I mean, the book by, it was Thomas Moore, wasn't it? He wrote Utopia, um, or was it Erasmus? Can't remember now. God, I should know that. I read it before, I should know it. Anyway, um, so imaginative fiction is is like a pure aspiration for betterment whereas the historian is only just what some <clears throat> is like some kind of crummy example someone attempting you know it's like sure we're all kind of like uh no one's perfect, but we all have to have. We all have to have this utopian aspiration. We all have to have the ambition, or the, or the, what's the word? Aspiration for improvement and constantly improving ourselves. So, um, this is why in this uh, the the four con main contenders: the the lawyer, yeah, it's commendable; the philosopher, yeah, commendable; the historian, yeah, commendable. But in terms of getting virtuous action really um, into people, it is poetry uh, because of the stories of fiction and, and poems that move people. They see virtuous, virtuosity in action, in the characters. Uh, and because it's fiction, it's, there's a phrase somewhere in the essay, it's virtuosity tuned to a higher intensity intensity because it's an imagine imaginative thing but that's inspiring so <clears throat> so uh i'll move on and also he just makes the point as well that like philosophy is also often very hard to understand um and it often is the case like it's it's uh people who are already quite educated only only they can uh, approach uh philosophy so um yeah so he, he, um, <laughs> I'll just leave that there. Um, what's the other one he's saying here now? Yeah, so I've mentioned that. So that's philosophy and historians falling out good, but not as good as poetry. Um, oh yeah, and there's a quote then, him kind of summarizing his uh, conclusion as to why poetry is better. Now, does the peerless poet perform both precept and action? For whatsoever the philosopher said should be done, the poet gives a perfect picture of it in someone by whom he presupposed it was done. Uh, so as he coupled the general notion with the particular example, uh, yeah, I'll just leave that at that. Uh, as I was saying, the, the fiction gives an actual example of this virtuosity in action, in the embodied in a, in a fictional character. Um, what else is her... Um, I don't have anything else highlighted on this page. Uh, once again, like the last podcast, there's loads of things I'm going to be leaving out, but I'm just going for the main points. Um, if you read the essay, it's just a gem of an essay, but uh, yeah, don't have time for to. As I said, I might as well just do it. Read out the whole book line by line and comment on it. That would take uh, days. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, he, he, he concludes here. He says, for conclusion, I say the philosopher teaches, but he teaches obscurely. So as the learned only can understand him. That is to say, he teaches them that are already taught. But the poet is the food for the tenderest stomachs. Everyone can get into the story. If there's philosophy in a, in a poem, it's much more easily understood because it's explained so much better because it's poetically explained. Uh, so he's saying the poet is the food for the tenderest stomachs. The poet is indeed the right popular philosopher. Whereof, whereof strange word, whereof, whereof Aesop's tales, Aesop's fables, give good proof whose pretty allegories, stealing under the, the formal tales of beasts, make many more beastly than beasts. He's talking about barbaric people. He's saying these simple Aesop fables um, can make people who are, you know, Aesop's fables is all about these beasts, like whatever, like uh, lions and bears or whatever. Uh, they're all about those animals. And then he's just, you know, this is a kind of a, his humor. Um, people who are more beastly than those beasts, beasts begin to hear the sound of virtue from these dumb speakers. <clears throat> um, what's the next point? Um, for who will be taught if not? Yeah, and then he's just making the point that poetry is moving. And it's that moving that... Um, inspires the virtuous action um i'll go on to the next page kind of uh halfway through my pages here now already um da, 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 da. a conclusion yeah as virtue is the most excellent resting place for all worldly learning to make his end of so poetry being the most familiar to teach it and most princely to move towards it, in the most excellent work is the most excellent workman. Yeah. He's just saying poetry is the best for instilling virtuous action in people. Um, then he goes into a uh, bit of a criticism of the type of poetry that's going on in England in his day. Let me see. Do I need to... Maybe I haven't marked these quotes so well. Let me see. Um, yeah, just as a um, as an example in uh, classic literature from uh, ancient Rome, the story of Aeneas in the Aenad. This is just a great quote um, about praise for for Aeneas and how he inspires virtuous action. I'm going to read out this quote from the essay in in full because it's just yeah, it's like whoa, I want to read that book. I have never read that book. I've read the. I've listened to an audiobook of the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, but I haven't read the Iliad yet myself, but I really want to read it now, even just because of reading this essay, how much praise he pours on it. Uh, so here's a quote about Aeneas, the, the virtuous, uh, virtuosity-inspiring um, character. How he governs himself in the ruin of his country. Because Aeneas, if you don't know, you know that film Troy with uh, Brad Pitt? That's... The Battle of Troy, the Siege of Troy, those were the Trojans. And the story is, if you don't know it, the yeah, the Greeks, Brad Pitt, whatever his side, and what's the other guy's name? Sean Bean, he was Ulysses. Sean Bean, is that his name? Um, he's in uh, Lord of the Rings as well. Cool actor. Um, he uh, So th they're the Greeks, 
Uh, Brendan Gleeson is a Greek. I think he plays a guy called Menelaus. I think maybe I got that wrong. Uh, anyway, and then uh, Orlando Bloom uh, is Paris on the Trojan side. So anyway, you know that film, right? Uh, so that's the Greeks attacking the Romans, and that's that. That film is coming from Homer's Iliad. So anyway, what happens is when the Greeks sack Rome with the with the with the horse. Um, the Trojan horse. What is, what's that phrase? My, what's going on with me? Anyway, so they, the, the Greeks sack Rome. Then it's the survivors of the Trojans who flee uh, their land and eventually end up in Italy. And it's those Trojans who eventually found, the, found Rome and the Roman Empire. So if you didn't know that, that's just the basic story of, uh, of the Aenad here that I'm about to... And the main character in the book of the Aenad is called Aeneas. So... How he governs himself in the ruin of his country. Now you know what that means. He's, the Greeks ruined his country by giving the horse, leaving the horse after the battle. Then they snuck in through the horse and blah, blah, blah. The Trojan horse, that's it. He, how he governs himself in the ruin of his country in the preserving his old father and carrying away his religious ceremonies. In obeying the gods' command to leave Dido. Not, no, not only all passionate kindness but even the human consideration of virtuous gratefulness would have craved other of him how in storms how in sports how in war how in peace how a fugitive how victorious how besieged how besieging how to strangers how to allies how to enemies how to his own lastly how in his inward self and how in his outward govern government, and I think in a mind not prejudiced with a predicating humour, he will be found in excellency fruitful. Yea, even as Horace, a Roman writer, said, he shows what is becoming, what is dishonourable, what is profitable, and what is not, much more openly and satisfactorily than to... Uh, Roman writers, it's hard to pronounce this guy's name, Chrysippus or something, and Crantor. Um, and then it's just another footnote. I'll read it out again because just more praise of Aeneas. Um, Boccaccio, a Roman, or an Italian uh, early medieval writer, uh, writes, Reread those lines in the Aenad where Aeneas exhorts his friends to endure, meaning encouraging, encourage his friends to endure patiently the labours to the last. How fine was the ardour of his wish to die a fair death from his wounds to save his country. How noble his devotion to his father when he bore him to safety on his shoulders through the midst of the enemy. What strength of character in spurning and breaking the chains of an obstreperous passion. What justice and generosity among friends and strangers at the games. Pontinus, some other writer I've never heard before, writes, Indeed, what is there in the way of piety, religion, endurance, courage, and again, what in respect of the uncertainty of human affairs and the change, changes of fortune which Virgil neglects in his treatment of Aeneas? So, as you can see, this guy, Aeneas, is uh, absolutely an astounding character and is, you know... The story is, I'm assuming, very moving, and you just see what he does, and it's you're seeing virtuosity in action. So that's just one of the best examples in literature. There's another one he mentioned in the essay. It's it's called the 
Cyropedia or Cyropedia. It's a, it's written by Xenophon, who was I think a Greek writer, and it's about a king called Cyrus. I think it's based on a historical king called Cyrus. And uh, this this uh, book is all about how to be the best king because it's another fiction, um, and it's uh, it's kind of like Aeneas as well. It's like how fiction can just be, uh, as I'm saying, like utopian. It, it will make you go beyond yourself maybe it makes you uh outdo yourself maybe um so yeah so then i think there's a quote here um let me see i don't have that highlighted so i don't know if i'm supposed to read this out since then poetry is of all human learning the most ancient and most fatherly antiquity i don't think i need to read this one out i think i've kind of covered it all already yeah, uh, there'll be a summary at the end. That's, that was a summary of the main points, just up to now. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> there was main arguments against poetry in Sydney's day. And uh, there's essentially four main arguments against poetry. And these would have been the kind of Protestant... Uh, Reformation people's main kind of uh, problems with poetry and why poetry and to be associated with poetry brings you into a questionable light. And this is what Sidney is trying to iron out here. And I think he does it very well. So the first one is that, you know, a, a man might better employ his time than reading stupid poetry, you know, but as Sidney has already showed, it is anything but stupid. If you want your state to be full of virtuous, virtuously acting people, what is the best way to, to cultivate that in our state? Yes, poetry. So, sorry, <laughs> you're wrong there. It is, it is, it is time well spent to be, uh, to be reading these heroes, you know? It's going to inspire heroic action. Um, the second attack is that Poets are liars because they're just making up stuff. It's just, you know, it's not true. You're just making it up. Um, <clears throat> but this is, uh, Sidney says, but this is also not true because poets are imaginatively presenting things. They're not presenting them as truth. They're there for your consideration. Um, he says, the poet nothing affirms and therefore never lies. For as I take it, to lie is to affirm that that to be true, which is false. So as the other artists, and especially the historian, affirming many things can in the cloudy knowledge of mankind hardly escape from many lies. Uh, yeah, so I don't need to go on there, but yeah, so it's not true that poets are liars. They're, they're not. It's, uh, there's no affirmation that what they're saying is true. It's all there for your own consideration in, in, in the imaginary realm. Um, the third main accusation against it is... Um, oh, yeah. It trains... Men, when the subject of the poetry is about just lust and love, uh, some romance or something, the Protestants were frowning upon this because they would have preferred poetry that was uh, espousing... Christian ideals um, so they were against um, you know maybe uh, stories from ancient Greece and Rome that were too 
just about romance um, because it's making people just focus on because these things these books were very influential <clears throat> um here again so so yeah that that was one main complaint that these books are just gonna make people just chase girls or yeah make 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 guys just <clears throat> um concentrate and chasing girls rather than acting virtuously um <laughs> uh, he concedes he concedes that poetry can indeed lead people astray if it is abused so this attack on poetry leading people astray is is true if it's about just lustful poetry or whatever because it is a powerful art that can lead people astray but that likewise implies that if it is used correctly it is a powerful art towards the great good, which is virtuous action. So if, if they're criti criticizing poetry for leading people astray, poetry is leading people astray because it's powerful. But he's making the point, it's not the fault of poetry, but it's the, it's the use of poetry in those particular books. So <clears throat> it's literally, don't hate the game, hate the player in this case whereas you know you, you might have heard that phrase hate the player not the game or no the other way around don't hate the the player hate the game uh this one is that an inversion what i just said don't hate the game hate the player yes it is an inversion um he says okay then he goes on about how Cannot all arts be abused? Doctors make mistakes. We believe what they say and they make people sick. Law can be abused, which should be uh, for making everything fair. Uh, people can, in that day, people can abuse the word of God um, to lead people astray. And then he has a great quote here. With a sword, thou mayest kill thy father. And with a sword, thou mayest defend thy prince and country. So he's just saying like, uh, like poetry is like the sword that can do good or bad depending on how you use it so he's saying don't blame poetry blame those particular poets which is a good point uh, and then the fourth accusation was that because they're all about virtuous action they thought that poetry was gonna effeminize or feminize men gonna emasculate men now <laughs> you know while it's it's just these cliches that are coming to my mind about poetry. It's flowery language, whatever. But anyway, he makes the point, uh, Alexander the Great, who was actually tutored by none other than Aristotle, uh, when Alexander went off conquering the world, he is said to have much preferred Homer's writing than Aristotle's, uh, because Homer's books where he could read were virtuosity in action whereas like we were saying like i'm saying uh, aristotle is a philosopher so he's going to be dealing in precepts and definitions and things so it's not as uh moving uh for inspiring virtuous action um so yeah it's it's like if there's an accusation that poetry is feminizing people it's like are you serious Alexander the Great. Are you telling me he was effeminate? Tell me he wasn't masculine and, and asserting himself and, uh, you know, carving out an empire for himself? Yeah. So it's just like Alexander the Great was into it, so therefore you got your argument falls flat on its face. <laughs> uh, and then the biggest kind of uh, 
seemingly the biggest, most threatening accusation against poetry is there was there was an accusation that oh even Plato banished poets from his ideal republic. Just speaking of uh, the notion of a utopia, Plato wrote kind of a utopia as well in ancient Greece. Um, it's called the Republic. It's his idea for how the perfect state should work. And so the people say, uh, oh, you know, everyone respects Plato. He's a great philosopher. So even he was saying that poets shouldn't be, uh, poets shouldn't be allowed in his, in his uh, Republic. But then Sidney points out, <clears throat> he's saying, I'll just read it because it's great because uh, he shows so much respect for Plato. He says, so when he's dealing with this uh, problem, when this attack, this accusation that even Plato said, poets are no good, uh, Sidney says the following. But now, indeed, my burden is great. Now Plato's name is laid upon me, who, I must confess, of all philosophers, I have ever esteemed most worthy of, worthy of reverence, and with great reason, since of all philosophers, he is the most poetical. Nice little, uh, see how I'm saying he subtly uh, subverts uh, the accusations against him. He's pointing out that, yeah, Plato, he's saying he loves Plato's work, and coincidentally, he finds Plato to be the most poetical of philosophers. So, <laughs> isn't that ironic if Plato himself banished the poets, and yet he was so poetic himself? You see, there's something wrong here, and Sidney is going to point it out what's wrong. Uh, after the philosophers had picked out the sweet mysteries of poetry... Oh, that's just... Uh, I don't need to read that, that one. It's interesting, but I don't need to. But the point is that um, <clears throat> that was a note just about the fundamental rivalry between poetry and philosophy, and Plato even states it in one of his uh, books that poets and philosophers are almost in competition with, with each other. Maybe it's this ancient Olympic Games. <laughs> maybe the, you know, Plato was trying to achieve something and maybe Poe was trying to achieve something as well and maybe they were vying for superiority. Anyway, but I would go with Sidney in this, uh, in, in his defense that poetry is a better communicator. Um, <clears throat> so here's the rub. Here's why, isn't it ironic that uh, Sidney would find Plato to be very poetic when apparently Plato banished poets from his commonwealth or from his republic. Well, here's the rub. But in fact, Plato only banished the abuse of poetry from his republic, not poetry itself. Because, uh, like I was saying, uh, some poets, if they just talk about, you know, lust, lusty things or whatever, that, that's going against Protestant uh, principles uh, and it's leading people astray. Likewise, in Plato's day, Poets were apparently writing things about the gods that apparently were not uh, um, what the Greek religion or mythology said about the gods. But once again, that's not the fault of poetry. That's the fault of those poets. This is what Sidney is saying. That's the fault of those poets um, picking up things and ideas, wrong ideas about the gods that were already in the society and making works about them. So that's, once again, it's the abuse of poetry, not poetry itself. Now, there's just a great, a great summary on this, uh, on, on, the, on this giant, how does he deal with the, this giant accusation of Plato? Plato said, even Plato said poets are no good. Plato, therefore, whose authority I had much rather justly construe than unjustly resist, meant not in general of poets, but only meant to drive out those wrong opinions of the deity. 
and a man need go no further than to Plato himself to know his meaning, who in his dialogue called Ion gives high and rightly divine commendation to poetry. So as Plato, banishing the abuse, not the thing, poetry, not banishing it but giving due honour unto it, shall be our patron and not our adversary. So once again, he subverted the accusation. He said, you know, he's not, he's not against poetry. He's, he's only against the abuse of it. Um, for indeed, I had much rather, since truly I may do it, show their mistaking of Plato under whose lion's skin, referring you to one of Aesop's fables, oh yeah, this is a re reference to Aesop's fables, where an ass who dresses himself in a lion's skin and passed for a lion until he was unmasked by a stranger who had actually seen a real lion before him. They would make an ass-like braying against poetry. Uh, um, <clears throat> where is it? Let's read that again. Um, for indeed, I had much rather, since truly I may do it, show their mistaking of Plato under whose lion's skin uh, and passed for a lion. Oh, shit. <laughs> Where is it? They would make... Oh, I've screwed it up again. <clears throat> I'll read it. I need a ruler or something. I have to read these lines. Uh, show their mistaking of Plato under whose lion's skin. Uh, they would make an ass. I'm just going to abandon this quote. <laughs> Screw it. It's, it's too big. It's hard to find the lines. Because there's a bit of I have to skip in the middle of it. Anyway, uh, where can I resume? Uh, the wiser a man is, the more just cause he still finds to have in admiration. Especially since he attributes unto poesy more than myself do. Namely, be a very inspiring of a divine force far above man's wit as in the aforenamed dialogue is apparent. Yeah, so <clears throat> that last bit there, um, it's Plato actually gives poetry a much more like divine, he has much more of a divine conception of what poetry is than Philip Sidney himself. Philip Sidney is the person here who's defending poetry and he's saying, he's pointing out that Plato actually gives much more divinity to the act of making poetry than S Philip Sidney himself does. So it's quite uh, ironic once again, you know, so there's just no, there's just no argument really against uh, that Plato said poetry was not good for a state or whatever. Yeah, so he's just, Sidney is just excellently dismantling all of the accusations against poetry here. So um, <clears throat> I don't see anything else in bold font here for me to read out. Um, go on to the next one. Yeah, there's probably a summary coming up soon now. I'm nearly, I'm nearly there. Um, the Read that there. Okay, so uh, Sydney concedes that he is. Yeah, so Sydney in this essay, he just is admitting that like. In England at the time, there was a lot of uh, what he claims is bad poetry, poets writing about bad subjects, badly constructed um, poems and plays. Uh, they're not learning from the best. They, uh, they, need to, they need to address these problems. So he says, Sidney himself admits that he is sick amongst the rest of poets and that if they would only discover what is making them sick, they could be better. So... This essay is like a defense of poetry, as I'm 
defensive poetry, yeah. Uh, but it's also an admission that there is a lot of things wrong with uh, the poet poetry of the day. So to get back to this uh, guy, Stephen Gosson, at the start, he wrote this book about uh, criticizing poetry. He had a lot of the accusations that uh, I just listed out. There was five of them. Um, I think Gosson was writing about those. So, but in the in the case of um, how poetry can lead people astray, Sydney is actually agreeing with Gosson, and he's uh, yeah he's saying yes, you know that can happen. So, um, um, but once again, it's just about the abuse of the art. Uh, if it's used correctly, it's it's a good thing. Um, so. So then there's just a great summary of the whole essay up until, um, yeah, this is a great, I've been looking forward to reading this part, actually. <laughs> so here's like this, I think it's the second last paragraph of the essay. So a summary just in conclusion reviews everything that has just uh, been discussed in uh, this essay. So here we go. I'll, get, I'll take a drink first. <coughs> oh, my throat is sore. All right, here we go. So that the ever-praiseworthy poesy, another word for poetry, is full of virtue-breeding delightfulness and void of no gift that ought to be in the noble name of learning. Since the blames laid against it are either false or feeble, since the cause why it is not esteemed in England is the fault of poet-apes, meaning kind of bad poets, and not poets themselves, and not poetry itself. Um, since, lastly, our tongue is most fit to honour poesy. Oh yeah, this is something I left out. He was uh, talking about how the English language is most suited uh, to poetry, and he goes into a couple of grammatical rules in comparison to other countries like uh, Holland and uh, uh, France and Spain and Italy. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can look up this essay. <laughs> uh, but he goes into the gra grammatical rules. I don't even know what those grammatical rules are. I haven't looked them up yet. Um, but uh, yeah, he gives some arguments stating why poetry will sound the best in English. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I have to look into that myself. Anyway, back to this big quote. <clears throat> Since the cause why it is not esteemed in England is the fault of poet apes, not poetry, since, lastly, or our tongue is most fit to honour poesy and to be honoured by poesy, I conjure you all that have had the evil look to read this ink-wasting toy of mine, meaning this essay, it's his witty way of kind of self, uh, what's the word, self-defacing, self-deprecating de self there from him, um, humble, uh, no more to laugh, he's, this is what he's, uh, he's uh, pleading with people, no more to laugh at the name of poets as though they were next inheritors to fools, no more to jest at the reverent title of a, of a rhymer, but to believe with Aristotle that they were the ancient treasurers of the Grecian divinity, like uh, the, the Sibyls and what's the other one, the Oracle at Delphi, to believe with Bembus, some other writer, famous writer that I've never heard of before, that they were the first bringers in of all civility, 
to believe with Scaliger, another famous Renaissance poet and writer, philosopher, that no philosopher's precepts can sooner make you an honest man than the reading of Virgil's Aenad. To believe with Clausius, don't know who he is, the translator of Cornutus, apparently, that it pleased the heavenly deity by Hesiod and Homer under the veil of fables to give us all knowledge logic, rhetoric, philosophy, natural and moral, and to believe with me that there are many mysteries contained in poetry which of purpose, which on purpose, were darkly written, lest by profane wits, meaning undeserving people, lest, lest by profane wits it should be abused, this secret knowledge that's contained in some poetry, to believe with somebody called Landino that they are so beloved of the gods, poets, that whatsoever they write proceeds out of a divine fury. Lastly, to believe themselves when they tell you they will make you immortal by their verses. thought that was quite a nice, impassioned... Uh, oh yes, and just as a note on the style, all of that last thing that I read out was one sentence. I kid you not. That was one sentence. There is many semicolons in there and there's many commas in there, but not one full stop until the last word that I said there. Quite the sentence. Um, I think, I, well, that's it now. That's, that's my first uh, run through of the whole. And then he ends the essay. There's one more section he just ends the essay on a kind of a witty i won't even look at it but he uh makes a kind of a joke like um you know if you want to be remembered in life uh and you don't appreciate poetry well then no one's going to be writing an epitaph for your uh headstone and you're going to be forgotten so yeah um let me just have a quick look here now at these notes um do i need to did i forget something Oh yeah, there's one pretty good quote here now. Yeah, so, like in the last podcast, I was talking about how Hugh of St. Victor had uh, a view of the arts as the redeemer of man from his fallen position out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, like, he talks about how man in the Garden of Eden must have been, you know, probably naked, but he was fine. Maybe it was paradise, he didn't need clothes. But then, when he, because of his sin, he fell out of the Garden of Eden. And then he was, the Garden of Eden, the whole environment changed and it was no longer perfect for him. And so he needed to get clothes and he needed all these sciences. Excuse me, he needed arts to, I don't know what he ate. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is, there's a great quote in the, in the introductory essay that I read talking about how this idea of um, the arts as a remedy for the fallen condition of man. I'll just, uh, there was just a really nice passage. I haven't written, haven't quoted anything really from the introductory essay yet, but I'll maybe kind of round it up with this. Um, I'll just read it out. So it's about, like I'm saying in my last podcast, Hugh of St. Victor had this view of the arts as a remedy for the fall of man. And likewise, just a few centuries later then in England, uh, Philip Sidney and the other people 
also had a, had the same kind of view that uh, the arts were a way of remedying the fall of man. So just, uh, I mean, <laughs> it was a great essay, introductory essay, so I'm just going to quote this in full. Uh, deserves to be quoted. For Sydney, poetry is the art of the fallen world. This point is worth repeating because it is fundamental to his argument. Humanity has suffered at some point in its past an appalling... Uh, ooh, I made a typo there. Something appalling, which lift... which. Uh, oh, God, there's a big, horrible typo here. Because when I'm uh, taking these notes, I'm speaking into my phone. And sometimes the phone doesn't get them right. But this is such a big quote, I didn't find this one. Anyway, so, okay... Uh, humanity has suffered some big catastrophe. We all know this, the flood and all uh, or no, leaving the Garden of Eden. Uh, and this leaving the, of the Garden of Eden has unhinged at, uh, <laughs> at best of recording mentally the state of perfection from which it has been precipitated but unable to reproduce more than... Okay. Screw that. This was a view of history shared by both the Christians and the classical religious traditions, so that there was some golden age in the past and now we're screwed, and now we need arts to remedy it. The former mourn the loss, Christians mourn the loss of the special relationship between God and human beings that are obtained in the Garden of Eden. The latter, uh, what was it, the, the classical religious traditions from Greece and Rome, the latter lamented the happy society of the golden age when the junior craftsman, uh, god Saturn, ruled the universe, when gods and people and beasts lived in harmony together, and the fruits of the earth were distributed equally among its inhabitants. According to both traditions, the human memory of perfection was growing dimmer as the passing years carried the species even further from its origins. Human beings were growing more selfish, more violent and devious in pursuit of their own interests, less willing to subject their private desires to the impartial test of reason, and, according to Sydney, the only human activity capable of bringing a substantial proportion of this species somewhere, somewhere back along the road to its fortunate past was poetry. Because of its equal appeal to two warring components of the human constitution, reason and passion. Yeah, so there it is. Th th those are like the main kind of points of uh, this essay. Um, it was an Olympic Games between a few contenders for which was the best at propagandizing, is maybe the wrong word, or cultivating virtuous action in England in order to strengthen England in all of its trials and tribulations. If you have a team full of virtuous actors, your team is going to be in pretty good shape. So yeah, so in the end, uh, yeah, poetry kicked ass. <laughs> and yeah, just uh, uh, just personally, I really can't wait to read the ANAD now. I mean, I've always kind of, it's obviously been on my reading list because you hear about it everywhere, but I think I might start it soon just because of... Uh, because of all of the great praise that was uh, lavished on it in this essay. Um, <clears throat> so that was this episode. Let me see if I have anything else I want to say, or probably now I'm going to, after it, I'm going to think of things that I uh, should have said or whatever. But, um, oh yeah, so 
poor Philip Sidney himself, the knight Sir Philip Sidney, as I said, he um he was a man who practiced what he preached. He uh actually somewhere else in the essay now I didn't mention it, but I just remembered it now. He talked about Aristotle uh in his philosophy was he was talking you know abstractly about uh virtuosity in action and he calls it when you have a theory and then you want to put it into action, the the two of those coming together, he had, there was a Greek word, I don't know if he coined it, but anyway, I know that he said it. It's in his essay, I heard it before, but the word is praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. It's when theory and action come together. So, um, why was I talking? Oh yeah, so I was, say, I was saying that, yeah, Sydney... Uh, seems to have practiced what he preached himself in his own life because unfortunately i think it was at the age of 30 he uh, was in a battle in in, in holland against uh, the spanish people who had who had conquered i must look into that why did the spanish conquer uh, holland I must look into that it's another day but uh um he was shot while he was on his horse and he rode back then to the camp after the battle and I think he knew he was going to die or else he underestimated the severity of his wound. And as he was on his horse, someone was, I think he asked for water and someone brought him water. And then as he was just about to take it, this is what the story goes. Um, he saw a soldier lying down and he, uh, Sydney, in Sydney's estimation, that soldier was worse off than he was. So Sydney is supposed to have said, no, give the water to him. He is in much more need of it than I am. And then 26 days later, apparently, I think it was 26 days later, that uh, Sidney himself actually died of that wound, the gunshot to the leg. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, Philip Sidney, a Renaissance punk and hero of uh, hero for defending uh, poetry in the pursuit of virtuous action. Yeah, great essay. Um, Great book. Um, footnotes are amazing. <laughs> uh, this book was amazing for the footnotes. Great education in, in this. Um, I think in my last podcast, I mentioned when I was speaking about the trivium and the quadrivium as being the original bachelor's degree and the original the trivium, when you study that, that was your bachelor's. And then the uh, quadrivium, that was the original master's. And then you could go on and do whatever. Um I didn't know. I knew though. I knew those. I knew that they were the original bachelors and masters, but I had totally forgotten where I got that from, and it was in a footnote in the back of this book. So lots of things I've gotten from this uh, book when I read it the first time. To, to, I think it was two thousand sixteen. Have stuck with me. I didn't even know where I got them from, but when I was reviewing it, I found. I was like, oh, I got it from this book. Cool. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, hope that was somewhat interesting. Um, I guess. I guess. Um, so, I mean, the, the thing is, like, um, is poetry, I mean, how am I going to, this is going to be open up a whole other can of worms now, maybe, but, uh, I mean, everything he says, like, poetry contained the first philosophies and the earliest history, and it's such uh, virtue-inspiring um, stories. I mean, I think that's all still relevant um, I mean, I, for one, I'm really looking forward to reading 
even reading Homer again, but reading the the Aenad again, I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um, I mean, it's it's a classic. It's it's an absolutely excellent story, apparently. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to I'm trying to think: is there any way, or um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great essay. Um, I, I guess what I'm struggling with here is, um, does his defense still like resonate with, with contemporary poetry? I, I think, um, I don't, I don't think contemporary poetry for me anyway, is in any danger of needing to be defended. Um, obviously Sydney felt like he had to defend it. Uh, but I don't think poetry nowadays has any um, need to be defended because it's, well, and as I mentioned earlier in one of the other podcasts, um, there's another essay, which is another famous defense of poetry, and that's written by a modernist poet called Ezra Pound, and I was mentioning that I might read that. I have I already read it before, but... I was saying, seeing as I'm kind of, I mean, I, I write poetry myself, so, um, and I'm interested in, uh, in, in the classics and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I may do another podcast sometime in the future on this more recent defense of poetry and like, why did Ezra Pound feel the need in the early 20th century? Why did he feel the need to once again um, feel like he had, to, he had to justify poetry? Personally, I don't think it needs... A defense, I mean, like any poet, contemporary poet that I read, it's like you, you pick up their book and it's usually kind of the ones I've read recently anyway are kind of like, you know, personal about the, that poet's life and poet society. So it's like in a few poems, you get all, you get so much um, about that person's life. You get so much about the hopes and aspirations and fears and difficulties of that particular society as represented by that poet. So, you know, poetry is its not just useful, but it's, I mean, it's inspiring, it's invigorating. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, it's funny now that having, having read this essay, which is all about a defense of poetry, and I think you will agree that poetry is 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 great having listened to that podcast hopefully you will see that you know there's not much you can say about it that's bad um but i'm i think i'm going to end on the note that yeah personally i don't think poetry needs to be defended um in this day and age because personally i just find too much goodness too much of value uh too much enjoyment in reading even contemporary poetry um, I just, I read Caleb Femi. He's a, I think he's Nigerian born, but he's, he grew up in uh, London. Caleb Femi, his book called Poor. Uh, it's one I read last year. Like, like I'm saying, like you open up a book of poetry and it's just like this world, this person's world condensed in a few poems. You get, you, you, you get like this whole person's experience and it's maybe something that is new to you or you didn't know what was going on or what some other people have to go through and how difficult it is. And, you know, 
it brings light to these things. Um, who else? Another poet that I really was like, probably the most, yeah, I mean, Caleb Femi's cool as well, but when I read, um, what's she called? The Poet Laureate for, the poet for the inauguration of, uh, of Biden, Joe Biden. <laughs> um, oh my God, what's her, Amanda Gorman. Yeah, if you're interested in, if you don't know much about poetry or something, I totally recommend Amanda Gorman's book. Where is it? I have it here somewhere. It's called, where is it? Yeah, look up Amanda Gorman. Um, oh, it's in the other room. I was going to get the title because it's it was such a stimulating uh, book. I actually didn't get to finish it yet, but well, what I did read from it was just like, oh my God, this human is like electric she's like so uh yeah really really great poetry <laughs> if you want to know some good contemporary poetry look up amanda gorman the book is called call us what we carry yeah it's just an amazing amazingly alive poetry um yeah so i don't think poetry needs any defense um, these days, <laughs> that was a great essay. I really enjoyed it. It's, it was a great history lesson for me about poetry. So I really appreciate that. But, uh, yeah. So yeah, I think I'm happy with that now. Um, yeah, poetry is going strong if you ask me. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So that was it. <laughs> I'm going to stop, uh, I'm gonna leave it with that now. I don't know how long this was, but, uh, there you go. Uh, I have to find my app here now again. Oh, you know what? There's one other thing that I, for I did forget. Um, as I mentioned, the guy uh, who who dedicated one of his books to Edmund or to uh, Philip Sidney, I have one of his books. Edmund Spencer is his name. It's called The Fairy Queen. Um, I read uh, the first. 100 or so pages of it, maybe 200 pages or something, a few years ago. It's an amazing book, you know, written in the Renaissance time, Renaissance English, really, really cool. But just a few weeks ago, or two weeks ago or something, I read the introduction that's, that Edmund Spencer wrote himself about uh, this book. He's from the same period as um, Philip Sidney. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, this guy, Edmund Spencer, has given a, a short, concentrated defense of poetry in his intro to this book. This book is humongous. It's like, how many pages long? It's like a few hundred pages. It's like 1,000 pages long. This It's like, oh, I read maybe the first book or two. Anyway, so yeah, just... Um, to kind of uh, yeah give another opinion on uh, another poet who was uh, trying to defend poetry. Here's what he says in his intro. Um, he says he, he wrote this intro to so that no one can misconstrue what he has written in uh, in this book. Um, he lays his he lays his intentions clearly. Um, he says um, the general end therefore of all the book is to fashion a gentleman or noble person in virtuous and gentle discipline. Um, so there's already kind of something very similar. Then there's just a few passages here now, or a few sentences. Um, 
So yes, then he, he mentions about uh, precepts. Um, he mentions philosophers trying to teach people with precepts and then, uh, and then poets doing it in fiction. And then he says, to some, I know this method of poetry will seem displeasant, you see. It's like poetry is totally against the ropes. Poets have to defend themselves, which had rather have good discipline. To some, I know this method will seem displeasant, which had rather have good discipline, delivered plainly in ways of precepts or sermoned at large, as they use, uh, than thus cloudily enwrapped in allegorical devices. So he's, he's making the point, yeah, some people might want just, uh, you know, uh, what virtuosity is taught to them in precepts and in definitions and stuff. Uh, poetry is so on the ropes here, the way he's writing, it's funny. But, but such, me seem, this is Renaissance English, should be satisfied with the use of these days, seeing all things accounted by their shows, it's kind of lamenting the showy, showiness of uh, outwardly display of people and how people praise that rather than something what in more inner and more uh, substantial. And nothing esteemed of that is not delightful and pleasing to common sense. So he's saying things have to be pleasing before people are going to uh, like them. For this cause is Xenophon preferred before Plato. You see, Xenophon was the guy who wrote that book called Cyrus that I was mentioning in the essay. Uh, and he says here, for, for this cause is Xenophon preferred before Plato. For that the one in the exquisite depth of his judgment formed, this is Plato, formed a commonwealth such as it should be. But the other in the person of Cyrus, Xenophon in his fiction Cyrus, and the Persians, I think Cyrus was somewhere in Persia, uh, he was a, king, a historical king somewhere in Persia. Uh, the Persians fashioned a government such as it might be. Um, so there it is. Plato's Republic is as it should be. What is the difference there? But uh, but Cyrus, in the story of Cyrus, it's as it might be. Uh, yeah, one is precepts, one is actuality, might be. Uh, so much more profitable and gracious is doctrine by example than by rule. <clears throat> yeah, that was it. Um, and then, just to completely round it off, there's another, I'm not sure if he's a bit later than Philip Sidney, but there's another Renaissance writer called Thomas Nash, and I just have a little screenshot here of something I saw from him. Thomas Nash says, Poets are necessary to the state. They make the vulgar sort aspire to a richer purity of speech, encourage the virtuous by their praise to be more virtuous, the soldier to be more courageous, and the vicious to fear eternal infamy. So there's a very, very, very succinct defense of poetry. So there's three different Renaissance writers defending poetry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think I better stop it now. So yes, here we are. God, I did almost two hours again. But uh, yeah, so episode number four, done. I have ideas for what the next ones are going to be, but I'll keep that a secret until they come out. Okay, hope you enjoyed. Hope it wasn't... Uh, yeah, hope, yeah. There were some moments where... Um, it's it's a live thing. Screw it, you know. If you're gonna listen to a podcast, so what if a guy doesn't or a girl just kind of 
is like scratching their head for a second or something <laughs> or getting a drink of water or going to their room to get a book to say something. I don't care. So what? If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, okay. That's it. Uh, until next time. Ciao, ciao.